Hi, this is Paul. Uh, Carrie, uh, what's his name? Um, Newhoff, Niehoff, I forget. He says it right at the beginning of the video. He's a church consultant, a church growth consultant. Um, some of you will get triggered by the first few minutes of this video that I'm linking to, so you might want to avoid it. Others of you won't. Anyway, he has had a number of conversations with Tim Keller over the years on his podcast, and he had this one. And I thought this one was really quite good, and I wanted to talk about it. So let's go. An extensive bibliography. So um, what are the differences, maybe we'll start here, between the decline in the mainline church that we saw kind of a generation ago yeah. and the decline that we're seeing today in the evangelical church? Well, the similarities are um, that both the mainline church a generation ago and now the evangelical church more recently have essentially uh, hooked themselves up to a particular political program. Obviously, the mainline church just became essentially completely uh, hooked up to the Democrats and uh, to liberal progressive democratic uh, politics and saying that this is the only really Christian way to be. Uh, and that decline happened quite a while ago. On the other hand, back by the 70s, for example, on the other hand, the evangelical church has more recently made the same move. It has, um, as at least in the public's mind, I'm not saying this is true of every single person in the mainline or of the you know, evangelical church, but largely, and in the public's mind, the evangelical church is seen as having hooked up to the Republican Party, especially to a very conservative wing of the Republican Party. And so in the same way, uh, we have also, the evangelical church has sort of said, this is the only Christian way to be politically. And so I think the population on the whole sort of sees both churches as basically a power block and not really speaking uh, to the transcendent issues that all human beings have. Okay, pause there. I know some of you got triggered by that. Just hold on to yourself. It, he's right. <laughs> now, I'm preaching on Matthew 13 this week, and I'm thinking a lot about inside-outside dynamics. I almost made a really snarky video I just got back from Southern California, had a terrific estuary meeting. Um, we're continuing to plan the May conference. Uh, details of that will be coming out soon. It's really interesting. So I, was, I almost made a snarky video about Christian YouTube. And then I did my Google Zeitgeist search on Christian YouTube and saw a whole bunch of Christian YouTube channels I'd never seen before. And just couldn't, didn't have the heart to make it. Inside the, let's say, the mainline church or the, the highly, let's say, inside the highly politicized mainline church and the highly politicized evangelical church or fundamentalist church, that is the world people see from the inside. This is, we, we all have our beliefs. We can believe no other. Our beliefs are not voluntary. Um, our beliefs choose us more than we choose them in many respects. From outside, 
what he just described is very much how it looks. It's very low resolution. It's very polarized. Now, many people, I know this is hard for a lot of church people to believe, many people don't know any people who go to church in America. Part of what I realized when I watched this video is that I, too, have a perspective, and I don't mean a political perspective. Y'all have, those of you who watch this channel enough, have know plenty about my perspective, but Keller's going to make some statements about racism and a bunch of other things. My evaluative tools are built on personal experience and the windows I have to the world through the books that I read, through the um, formerly through the mass media and now through the social media that I receive, through the people that I use to filter and search and select how I perceive the world. So people are going to have different huge estimations of the world. At last night's estuary meeting, it was, it was fascinating. We didn't uh, Jacob was there and Richard was there, but almost nobody else there knew who I was, which is always fun because these are people that have come to Vendonk's Southern California Estuary. There, it's enormously diverse. You've got, um, you've got just on a religious space, it's, it's really interesting. It was all men in that group. My group here in Sacramento was increasingly women. It was all men in that group. And all of these men tend to be very low in agreeableness and very high in openness. And so they come to a group like this because they can speak freely. They can speak their mind. But we all have to try to evaluate. And they were going on and on around many of the sort of hot button social issues. And again, they're all low in agreeableness and high in openness. And so they're talking about it all in their own way. And there's no way to sort of pin any of them down in terms of where they stand on this issue or that issue. But it just occurred to me how this, the reality of combinatorial explosiveness and the narrow sphincter of time and space naturally lead us to create hierarchies and salience models that bring things to the top. And, and we are in many ways so out of touch with the things that we choose to talk about. And also the ways that we try to gain purchase on a world too big for us to grasp. Okay, I'm going to say all of that. So what Keller just said about the church is very true from outside the church for people for whom church involvement or church knowledge is only through their media, their mass media, cable media, or social media sources. That's the view. Now, I know the church at a far higher resolution, and Keller basically said it. He said, "You know, you get down into church, you'll you'll go into a you'll go into a conservative church in a red state, and you will find <laughs> quiet Democrats. You go to a mainline church in a blue state, and you will find quiet Republicans. The as the resolution goes up, the picture always gets more complex." But pay attention, when we're talking like this, we have to talk in really low resolution. And so all of these things are subject to further analysis, further, um, further exploration, and nuance. It's also important to remember that Keller is fundamentally a missionary. He's not a theologian. He's a pastor evangelist, and his main job has been to be a church planter 
and help people who don't go to church to start going to church and to worship God and to change their beliefs and to change their behaviors. And this gets into some of the video that I made earlier this week about Tripp and uh, Bethel's conversation with Sam. Um, the, I think what's interesting is uh, the difference, by the way, is that whereas the, the mainline church jettisoned orthodox doctrine, it jettisoned the idea of the authority of the scripture and the deity of Christ and the return of Christ and all that. Now, again, Keller is a church in the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, which is a conservative split off from the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Uh, the PCA is a conservative reformed church that whose doctrinal statements, um, I don't know how many, uh, the Westminster Confession is the main one. And they, you usually sort of tag churches according to certain belief systems. They're very similar to the Christian Reformed Church, a little bit more conservative, let's say, on some of on certain issues because they don't ordain women to um, the office of elder and minister. Um, I think they might have deaconesses, but... And they thought they were getting with the times, but what's actually happened is they're cut off now from 80... 90% of the world church. Okay. Remember that point right here. They're cut off from 80, 90% of the world church. Think about that. A little bit later, he's going to talk about slavery. He's going to talk about what's remarkable, this close up. I mean, I've, I've Keller, there's a lot of, there's a lot of commonality in the background between Tim Keller and myself. Um, we both, he, he's a generation older than I am, but in terms of East Coast conservative reformed urban ministry, uh, that's the same, that's the same group that I come from. And, you know, I look at his library and we've read the same books. Um, I grew up on, I grew up on the East Coast just outside of New York City. The bulk of his ministry was in New York City, so... There's a fair amount of social commonality, even though he's a generation older than I am. But this point, the mainline church is cut off from the world church. He's going to go into that a little further. Which is which is growing. Hmm. And it, it's very embarrassing that, uh, you know, there's two million Episcopalians in America, a very liberal church. And yet, like, there's 11 million Anglicans in, you know, in uh, uh, Uganda alone. And there's twice that much in, in Nigeria, and they're all Orthodox. And the same thing has happened for the Methodists. In other words, the, right. the, the church here is Methodist, is sort of liberal, but worldwide Methodism is not. So they've actually cut themselves off from the growing edge of the church and the world church. Evangelicals have not. Which now, now, it's helpful here to note that Kelter's primary filter. Now, I'm not evaluating this filter. I'm a, I'm a Christian Reform minister in a confessional denomination, but I just want to name it and put it out there that, that this confessional Protestant categorization and belief system is the filter that Keller is using to evaluate the main line and to note that the main line is out of step with the ecclesiastical siblings that they have especially in Africa, Asia, and Latin America in the, in the developing world, let's call it. And that's a really critical point because a little bit later when he talks about 
the American Civil War, which is a key moment in the evolution of the American church, he'll notice that the pro-slavery churches in the southern part of the United States were saw the world differently from their cousins that were, for example, in Scotland. And I would have liked him to draw those connections there too. But let's let's listen to a little more. And I want to jump to that part. And then I really want to get sort of to the end. Which I think means, because we haven't cut ourselves off and because we haven't jettisoned Orthodox doctrine, at least not yet, we haven't, it means in some ways there's something there to be revived. Hmm. And there's something there to be revived, especially if we... Because I believe, of course, Orthodox doctrine is true and biblical, but I also believe it keeps us in touch with the with the uh, world church. And therefore, I have little or no real hope for any kind of renewal with the main line, but I have a lot more hope renewal with the evangelicals. When I say a lot more, I means that's a low bar compared to how I feel about the main line. The evangelicals, I still don't. I'm still worried, very, very, very worried. But I do think there's something there. Now. He's going to talk about some of the issues that some of you, and he's going to talk about them in the way that some of you hate him for. Hate is probably too strong a word. Uh, some of you uh, critique him for, and I, I know a lot in my audience. But now what's interesting, what he doesn't do, and this is in fairness to some of the people who have criticized Keller. If he would use some of the same arguments a little later in the video and apply them to the main line, they would be devastating because well, let's let's just play a little bit more and get into some of these issues no and it is it is helpful and yet you don't exactly whitewash the issues of the evangelical church and okay. in that paper yeah. which again we'll link to you know you do make a distinction between white evangelicalism now i had to do a little bit of clicking down to find the paper but i'll put the link to the website that you can have that you can get this paper from and then the paper itself. I haven't read the paper yet. I'm really interested in it because I think I think Keller I think Keller is very sharp in his cultural exegesis. And other forms of evangelicalism. And I'm not sure we'll have time to get into all seven traits that mark the social history of white US evangelicalism. But could you give us a little overview of how white evangelicalism is because it's in a free fall right now some of those traits and how that has become counterproductive. Yeah. Now, there's something to say about white evangelicalism versus black evangelicalism. If you take a look at sort of the standard church demographic and statistical studies, the surveying that has been done of the church, uh, black Protestants are almost always in a separate category from white Protestants. Part of the difficulty of that categorization, it isn't that black Protestants don't deserve their own category, because in many ways, because of the history, because of how significant the Civil War was to the development of Christianity in America, and how significant the, Mark, a lot of Mark Knowles' work on the, um, the pioneer and frontier dynamics in American history were on the history of um, white evangelicals in America. Um, these aren't bad categories to use in order to do some analysis and get some things. Now, part of what we're dealing with is that these terms have been used to such a degree 
that um, and 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 by so many critics that they have a new valence that sort of rushes in, and right away we're having um, a conversation. That there's sort of a presumption of guilt. White evangelicals. This is this is actually a tremendously difficult category to talk about. For example, are in Sacramento there are a lot of immigrants from the former Soviet bloc in Sacramento. Are they white? I remember when my kids were going to high school here. Um, you know, one of my sons, he was white, not Russian. That's what the kids called him because there are so many Russians. And they knew that sort of generic white, if there is such a thing, was different from the Russians, the Russian immigrants. Um, there's a significant charismatic evangelical community in the United States from the former Soviet bloc. Are they lumped into that group? So part of the resolution that we're dealing with here sort of needs more nuance, but in what's effectively sort of a half-hour interview that they have here, you don't drill down into it. Now, now Keller's going to spend some time talking about talking about race, and, and this is where I think some of my differences come in in that I have not spent much time in the South. Racism in the northern parts of the United States is different from racism in the Midwest, is different from racism on the West Coast. I've seen that my whole life. I've not, I've never lived in the American, the, the old slave, the old slave states of the United States. I would expect that racism and race relations are different there too. So there, there's a ton of nuance there. And, and Keller has, I treated Keller's document a little bit. He has some ideas about what he thinks the evangelical church should do. And well, let's listen to a little bit more. I can name them at least. And that way, sure, yeah. whether we can go yeah. into them or I can name them. And yeah, um, well, one is there's a moralism. Uh, it's it's it tends to be moralistic, which means self-righteous. It's separatist, which is in in general, uh, white evangelicalism, or you want, I, I, some people are going to say this is just fundamentalism. Okay, well, that's, we can talk about that, but that uh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism are in some ways just joined at the hip. Um, and it's always very hard to tell quite where the, where the divide is. But the point is, uh, conservative evangelicals are moralistic and self-righteous. They tend to be separatistic they don't really like to engage. They feel like it's compromising. They they see good and evil in kind of Manichaean ways. You know, we just have to denounce and withdraw. Okay. And now again, these are generalizations, and I'm not sure. I'm sure they're apt for some groups and some churches. Are they apt across the board? What percentage? It's. Again, when you're talking this way in such a short interview, there's almost no way to escape broad generalizations. But the di the difficulty the difficulty is that when you talk this way, you sort you begin to, and especially if you're sort of an authority like Tim Keller is in many respects, you tend to reinforce the low resolution takes that that we see in the world. And and you can find examples of, of everything that he points to, positive and negative, but you can also find 
huge swaths of the church that just don't fit into this. For example, um, Assemblies of God churches. I mean, the the charismatic Pentecostal churches are are tremendously are, are is the Assemblies of God white? And and if you know anything about the Assemblies of God, I mean, for example, we've had the church across the street from us. Uh, when I got here, there were an Assemblies of God church. Um, they sold the building. A Russian church came and uh, removed all the asbestos themselves. Didn't pay all of those uh, high-priced asbestos removers. I watched them haul all that stuff out of the church. When they sold the church, they sold it to an Assemblies of God bilingual Hispanic church. Churches are really hard to categorize. So he's he's got a you know he does a fair amount of this analysis in this way, but. Number three, they're, they're very individualistic. It's all about just me and getting myself right and getting to heaven. Uh, four, uh, it's dualistic, which goes together with individualism. It's dualistic where it's, it basically tends to, you know, pit uh, Christianity against culture. Uh, we, we either withdraw from culture uh, or we fight it, but there's no idea of uh, that there's... <laughs> It goes along with uh, the separatism, but it's it's there. In, in other words, the the world is bad, and everything in the church is good. Instead of seeing that the world has got common grace and the church has got, you know, uh, sin in it, but instead dualism, it's like it's all good or evil. Anti-intellectualism is a major um, trait of American evangelicalism. You don't see it in the British as much, for example. You know, when you take it, you know, why is it that when I was first coming to be a Christian in 1970, in the 70s, why, why is it that almost every, as a college-educated kid, everything I read, you know, whether it was C.S. Lewis or J.I. Packer or John Stott, they were all British. And it's because uh, in America, you just have an anti-intellectualism and you just really didn't have books written for college-educated people. Now... There's definitely anti-intellectualism in American culture. I, I, I don't deny any of his categories, but the difficulty is it's, you know, look, look at everything that happened in the neo-evangelical movement. You're not going to find anti-intellectualism at Wheaton or Calvin or, or many of the other institutions. Now, are these tendencies? Yes. Are they, are they more so in the United States? Yes. Is that a product of the frontier movement? Yes. So, okay, we're going to name these things. But part of the difficulty here is that, again, we're, we're tending to reinforce the stereotypes. Um, then there's an anti-institutionalism, uh, which means evangelicals just like to set up their own shop, their own organizations. Uh, they just don't like to become part of existing institutions and existing organizations. They, just, they like to do it themselves. Highly entrepreneurial, but also anti-institutional. So the stuff just kind of, they, they don't build things that last. Uh, and finally, enculturation. That is to say, there's a tendency to wed uh, Christianity to American culture. So it's the reason why, yeah, there's a, I was. And, and again, these are generalizations almost stereotypes in some cases. There's there's validity to them. I, I don't really disagree that this is out there, but this process tends to... The last point, I think it's nearly universal. 
again, someone, a, a woman in Italy, it, it's really sort of a, a the, oh, a, a woman was elected in Italy and I saw this whole video about how, video from unheard about how, you know, it's, it's God in Italy. And as I've said many times, nationalism and religion are really tight and it's a little bit different for Roman Catholics. I, I wonder if it's, I think it's, it's more different for Catholics perhaps than the Orthodox because the Orthodox churches that have come into the West have in many respects come in with their national tags still on them. Antiochian Orthodox, no, it's not a tag, Greek Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox. And so, yeah, that's here, but it's almost always a part of the package. And, and again, I, I don't think these are bad windows through which to view some things, but... I say there certainly is grounds for uh, the gender roles. I think the Bible does talk about there's differences between male and female, but there's a tendency amongst evangelicals and fundamentalists in America to exaggerate those and, and basically read anything traditional American gender roles back into the Bible. Uh, also, there's nationalism, which is the idea that we're the greatest country in the world. You kind of read your Americanism back into the Bible. Now, when I listen to this this list, I, I very much recognize my roots, the conversations and discussions that I grew up in in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I, I hear the window through which the the culture was seen 20-some years ago, and this is part of my critique on his piece too. I, I'm, I'm not saying any of these elements are, are, are wrong necessarily. They're certainly, they're certainly there. It's very difficult to sort of calibrate them and figure out, okay, how, how much is this working? And it's certainly more true in certain parts of the country than other parts of the country. I think it probably tends to be more true in on the East than in the West, although we've got some of that here too. So, but I don't know that this framework remains the best framework through which to try to do analysis of, let's say, a revival of the church in the United States. And I think that because I don't think there's really a going back. And I look at that through the lens of my own denomination, the Christian Reformed Church. There's no, go there's no going back to the church that my grandparents grew up in, where, I mean, I, I could give a list of things of the, the Christian Reformed Church before the Second World War that radically changed by the 1960s and a list of things from the Christian Reformed Church in the 1960s to the 1970s that radically changed even for many of the conservative, let's say, churches in agricultural America and Canada today. It's just been massive change, which means that the real quest is to figure out, well, what is, what is faith going to look like? And from everything that I think we've seen, that I've seen in my little place seeing the world, uh, 
I, I don't know that sort of a simple um, holding orthodoxy or loosing orthodoxy, which which seems to be sort of the filter through which, let's say, Christian a lot of Christian YouTube sort of sees the world, is really going to hold. Because my experience has been, it, it's not that doctrines are necessarily abandoned. It's that there's almost always very slow, subtle movement beneath the categories that has them functioning different in a new cultural system. And this is why you tend to see new issues emerge that weren't emerging before. In other words, the, the, the dynamic is, is quite a bit quite a bit more more sophisticated um and so there we are moralism separatism individualism dualism anti-intellectualism anti-institutionalism enculturation and if you want to find and, and again i i could have constructed that list in college and seminary in the 1980s and that would have been the list i look at the world today and i think yeah those things are still around but I don't know that those are in any way the key issues that if, for example, you if you could really address all of them in, in the way that you pr would prefer, that somehow you could recapture the church of a certain date between 20 and 75 years ago. I, I just don't think history works that way. And with the radical changes that we've seen via information technology I I don't think I don't think there's any going back and in fact and and again I know some of you will hear this and say well it's doctrine slipping I don't think that's the proper f f lens through which to view it not that I'm promoting doctrine slipping if you read the church order the Christian Reformed Church the entire thing is the is a determined effort by a community not to change doctrine and dogma even though change has come about all the way through the whole lifetime that I or my father or grandfather have have lived in the church. And a lot of the lot of the changes coming about in ways that aren't necessarily mapped onto the doctrinal or confessional roadmap where the church is. For example, I you know, so I just I was just thinking about how the integration of there's already artificial intelligence built into Google and Bing, but the intra, but the the incorporation of Chat GDP, which has been sort of making all the headlines now. You can have it write a sermon. You can have it write a book. You can have it tell you exactly how to change a baby's diaper or make a grilled cheese sandwich. All of this stuff, when that's incorporated into a major search engine built into the browser of the number one operating system creator in the world basically designed to unseat Google, it doesn't mean that conversations about Christology are going away. You know, I just got a nice, um, I was just listening to Chad's conversation with Chris Green about beauty and Christology. And so these, these categories aren't going away, but whereas 80 years ago, the the concern in the Christian Reformed Church 
was not Roman Catholicism. They were out there. Methodism was the concern in the Christian Reformed Church, that the Christian Reformed Church would, would slowly become more like the Methodists, meaning sort of the evangelicals. Catholics, well, they were, they were far away. Um, 40 years ago, well, sort of, you know, CRC increasingly evangelical. The concern was that the Christian Reform would become anti-Catholicism was still a big piece of it, but the concern was, let's say, doctrinal slippage, and then you had the fights about women in office. So I don't know that this, this, these, I think that landscape has changed quite a bit since the creation of that list. Again, it's not a bad list, but when I listen to evangelicals fight, I just think you're fighting over what you were fighting in the 1980s. And the world is changing, this, this free fall that's happening. I don't know that addressing that list that he just laid out is going to do anything about that free fall. Find out where they came from. You gotta kind of read um, both Nate Hatch, his book, Demo uh, The Democratization of American Christianity, and, and definitely read Nate Hatch and Mark Knoll and George Marston. So I looked at his, I looked at this. So this is the this is the doctrine, not the doctrine. This is the document he he started. And you know his his bibliography is my bibliography. I mean, there's he's reading the same things I am. Um, Yuval Levin, um, Christopher Lash, Tom Holland. Tim Keller and I are, are from the same place, a generation apart, reading the same books, uh, believing mostly the same things. We're, we're really close, but when I listen to this analysis, I think, well, and you know, he's he's got stage four pancreatic cancer, so I'm not going to lean into him too much, but From what I've seen over the last five years, I I think I think the I think the laundry list and the setting of the table is outdated. And Mark Knoll, Mark Knoll stuff, and basically they they essentially say that kind of what happened back in the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties, American evangelicalism, in order to really grow on the frontier, had to go to a less educated ministry uh it, it just went anti how do you say it went populist in the 1830s it's a long story and you know what i've, I've already taken too long on this question this by and and he's right and, and again i read the same history he reads and i i agree with it it's exactly it took a populist turn but it's been taking a populist turn it's 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 continued to morph over the last 20 30 years too and significantly and faster I guess it's not lasting three hours, so I should uh, make my questions uh, a little shorter. But they, they ex explain why American evangelicalism has been so anti-intellectual, populist, you know, of the people, but then really not trusting the academy, the university, not trusting science, just not trusting, you know, people with degrees, just not, just not trusting them. So. 
Yeah, and which of those, like if you had to pick a couple, and maybe it's a false question, and if so, we can move on, but which of those do you think in this moment has become the most damaging? Because I was just looking over the Barna data this morning, uh, doing some writing, and I mean, we are in a bit of a free fall. There's a little yeah. uptick after, uh, but when you look at Gen Z, I mean, mm-hmm. they're spiritually open, but Christianity is just not very interesting to younger adults. Well, if you read, if you read those seven, I don't I don't know that that's the case because there's just a lot of people who've gotten very interested in in different kinds of Christianity. I don't think I'm going to pick one out. They really are involved with each other. The seven, when I was working on it, I could have made it three. I could have made it five because they kind of overlap. Um, but I, I, I broke them out because I, I think it's a... Um, uh, if, I'm trying to think here. Is there a way for me to summarize it? It's a. Uh, I, I think I think the two things would be the moralism and the um, the fear of um, uh, in a kind of I don't want to be mean here a kind of fear of ceremonial impurity. Uh, like I'm going to get in. I'm just going to be harmed if I read this book or if I if I associate with these people. And see, that is moralism, ultimately. It's not It's not the confidence. You know, Jesus was eating with... with, with... And I, I agree with Keller on, on those points. And again, if you look at Christian YouTube, it's full of it. You know, prostitutes and sinners and people like that. And the religious leaders of the day were saying, how could he, you know, if you're a real man of God, why would you have anything to do with him? And because Jesus understood who he was and he understood the gospel of grace he was just not afraid of being uh, made impure. And I do think that, that, that I don't, I really do think a lot of evangelicalism, they, they can articulate the gospel. I'm saved by grace, not by works, but deep in its heart, it's pretty moralistic. And the way you do that is you stay pure and you keep your doctrine right and you live in all these ways. And then you start looking down on people and you separate from people. So I get, I think it's the moralism, the lack of grasp of the gospel and the particular, now, it's when you listen to Keller, it's really helpful to understand the. Oh boy, I gotta be careful with this because I want to be accurate. Because I'm not denying. Because again, confessionally, he and I are on. You know, we're just a hair's difference apart. It hair's difference in terms of what ecclesiology, a bit perhaps. But he and I are, and he's been deeply influential in me. And and what happened in the 90s with the emergence of the Young, Restless, and Reformed, remember the Young, Restless, and Reformed, the, 19, the 1970s, you have the born-again movement in American, in American Christianity. Um, Chuck Colson is going to go to prison for what he did in the Nixon administration. And some, he's his his life is a mess, and he's talking to some Christians in Washington. And this is summary. You can't find it as such in Born Again, which is a which is a very interesting read. Now, a number of decades later, I mean, he basically comes home and says, you know, you know, I'm I'm a Christian, and his wife is like, I thought we were Episcopalian, 
and and so you have you know Jimmy Carter's this born again president so you have this this rise of it's really sort of this this separation the 1970s is tremendously important in terms of the church even in the Christian Reformed Church in the 1970s you had the beginning of the fight over women in office you had the 1973 report on um, on sexuality you had um, you had a significant uh, report 44 as it became known significant report on um, interpretation of scripture. It's like all of these things happened in the 1970s and we're still sort of playing out what happened in the 70s after this cult counterculture. So then you have the 1980s, which basically kept an evangelical structure of, of Christian belief and salvation, but added this seeker veneer on it. And the seeker movement in some ways is connected to the today's wisdom movement in that if you go to a seeker church, you go to Bill Hybels church, you go to Rick Warren's church, you would find sort of a revivalist, contemporary music, high quality music uh, presentation. So people aren't going to be offended by the music. They're going to like the music. You, you've got a concert quality music on a, on a Sunday. You've got good coffee. Your children are going to be cared for in a safe environment. And the message is going to focus on wisdom. And the, the validation of the gospel is going to be, we have wisdom to help you improve your life. You're going to have a better marriage. You're going to save more money. You're going to be a better worker. Your children are going to, are going to behave better. We're going to teach you how to run your life. And all of, the key to all of this is, is becoming a Christian and bowing your knee to Jesus and going forward in that way. That's the key. And so the seeker movement, this huge movement, it's also important to remember that the West is huge and the United States is huge. So there are times and places, or there are places in the United States where the seeker movement is still going on big time. Um, Non-denominational megachurches in Southern California, in the Midwest, not so much out East, I don't know. But so, so that's still going. But as, you know, Gen Z, the, the seeker movement, they began... So I went to Willow Creek a number of times in the 90s and the seeker movement began to understand because, again, read Molly Worthen's um, Apostles of Reason. Neo-evangelicals have always really paid a lot of attention to social science. And this, again, is where Keller's critique, and he knows all this. He's given a half hour of interview, so I, I'm in no way trying to kneecap him. He's going in, in short sound bites. But again, even that is an element of pre-YouTube. So Willow Creek decides, they see that, wow, our methods are really hitting home runs with boomers, white boomers. But not just white boomers. It's going. It's going well. Willow Creek is helping planting churches all over the place. It's working well in Hispanic communities. It's black communities. Antioch Progressive. It's American Baptist. That's down the street from me. They built a massive building. But again, the dynamics in the black church are always different, um, and and that's a whole other story. So the seeker movement begins to notice that. It isn't working so much for the Xers. And so then they start, they hire um, 
uh, Xander, I think his last name or first name. Um, I don't remember. They hire a young guy. They retune the music to be a little bit more Gen X. They make it a little bit, you know, the boomers kind of happy, Beach Boys, um, Gen Xers a little bit more dour, a little bit sadder. And so that, well, we're just going to use the seeker methodology. We're just going to apply all of this stuff. And that's going to make, that's going to bring in the kids. And it doesn't work. And so what you have after the seeker movement is the emergent movement. And that that is where you get this the, the similarities between Mark Driscoll and Nadia Boltzweber. And again, you'd look at them and say, how on earth would Mark Driscoll, Nadia Boltzweber, and... Um, And Rob Bell, why would all, how can you find the commonality between all of them? But you do. They're all part of the same generation. And Nadia Boltz-Weber sort of becomes, now she's like this um, leader of evangelization or something. I don't even know if the, the liberal Lutherans would use that word. I forget what it is. But she's like their poster woman. And Rob Bell is off in Oprah land and Mark Driscoll, well, we've heard a bunch about him. So and you have the Young Restless and Reform Movement. And it's, it's out of that movement that we really get Keller and Piper and the Gospel Coalition and, and all of that comes up. And, and this, again, is, is, it's really hard. It would be really hard to imagine in the 1980s that the next thing after the seeker movement would be among other things a young restless and reformed movement and the gospel as as tim keller uses it in a particular way some people have called the young restless and reformed movement sort of neo neo puritan because they really reach back and use a lot of english puritan language texts and they sort of use this theological, pastoral, let's call it a psychotechnology. And it's 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 really a package, and it's been very, very successful in for many people. I bumped into it first when someone called me out of the blue, and he's still a friend of mine, and said, I want you to be my mentor. Who are you? Um, well, I've, I'm reformed. Well, okay. Where's your pastor? No, I, I grew up in this, um, grew up in this Anabaptist church, but how did you become reformed? On the internet. Oh, so we've, we've met over the years and, but so, so when Tim Keller says the gospel, it's a very specific thing that it's a very specific package that Keller used to great effect and um, and really given all of his skill has has really sort of laid it out but it's a it's a very particular thing and if you listen to hundreds of his sermons as I have you you, you very you learn it and then if you if you listen to anyone in that movement you can sort of identify it right Luke and it's a very particular thing. Okay, and and what's difficult is that for a lot of Christian Reformed people and a lot of evangelicals, the gospel that word means something, and it's not far off what the Young Restless and Reformed Gospel Coalition, um, 
neo-Puritans, how they use it. It's not far off. It's just much better focused and the resolution is higher and there's a whole pastoral psychology and methodology connected to them that's specific to that movement. Particular way that that has played out in American history. I found it also really helpful in the paper. Uh, do you call it a paper? It feels like a mini book. It feels like there's a book there, Tim, um, and uh, I hope one day there will be. Yeah, I think it's about uh, a half a book. Yeah. Um, it's 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 the um, yeah it's the it's the it's the spine of a book. So yes, thank you. But anyway, what what, what, <laughs> well, did, you, what did you say? It's robust. And, and again, I, I've got all this guy's books. Um, I've read most of them. And, and some of his books I really treasure. And in, in the mid-aughts, the, mid um, the second half of the mid-aughts, I, I was listening to, I, I was listening to, I, I, I listened to hours of Keller every day for a couple of those years because um, I really needed it. And it, it saved my faith, um, saved my ministry, Really, you know, I owe I owe this man. I mean, you, you've seen the deep dive I've done into Jordan Peterson. I did this first into Keller, and so I owe this man a, a tremendous debt of gratitude for for the ways that he's helped me. Okay. No, but you also trace out racial history and yeah, evangelicalism, yeah. and make a distinction between white evangelicalism and other forms of evangelicalism, yeah. which arguably aren't in the kind of free fall that white evangelicalism is. Uh, what what is helpful for us to focus on when it comes to race? You know, and even sort of the way that's sort of put together here. Well, white evangelicalism is defective in the way that these non-whites aren't. Boy, I'll tell you, the, the stuff going on in the black church, I mean, they're in the midst of, they're in the midst of a ton of stuff too. <laughs> and, you know, I, I can't imagine what's going on... So, of course, I've talked to a lot of people in orthodoxy over the last few years. And you would think from the view of this little corner that orthodoxy must just be growing great guns in North America. I've, other people have said, no, it really isn't. Why? Because even though we've got people coming in to orthodoxy via the Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Peugeot pipeline, you've got immigrants walking away from it. I, I was I was watching that show about the Islamic kid growing up in North Jersey, and that's on Hulu. And you know, as with almost all of these things, you know, the first couple of seasons are good, and the the, the seasons kind of degenerated. The first season was good, but but it showed it showed the struggle of of faith in America now. What he gets into later in the second half of this, I think, is really, really helpful. But this analysis of the church, I think, is very dated because I that church, churches tend to hold things and freeze things. And, and that's in many ways what these institutions are designed to do, to slow things down. And that's a tremendously helpful thing in an age like ours, but... Um, so remember earlier when he talked about how 
the mainline churches in the West are disconnected from their sister churches in the East. And that was a huge thing in the United Methodist Church where the American United Methodist wanted to evolve on on sex and gender and the African bishops are like over our dead bodies. And, you know, so suddenly, and I've made this point about the CRC with Synod 2022, that the most progressive aspects of the CRC tend to be also the whitest. That when you looked around Synod 2022, it was young pastors of color and leaders of color who in many ways were making some of the most conservative noises. And many of those um, really sort of from a neo Puritan, young, restless, and reformed posture. Because again, there's a lot of confessional uh, closeness between sort of the neo-Puritans and the Christian Reformed Church. There's a ton of shared DNA in those groups. And the evangelical church. Well, we do have... The history is pretty sad. Actually, uh, Mark Knoll has two books on that. He does have a book. Oh, I forget the name of it. It's behind me. I think it's the Oh, dear. He's got a book on race. And Reed, uh, I, I read it. I mean, Mark Knoll's a, a tremendous historian. And um, the, the, some, the, he'll, he'll, he'll remember it later, the theological conflict of the Civil War. And it's a fascinating read. Oh, I should just play it. And the church. But I just okay. forget the name. But he's we'll, also we'll Google got, it and link to yeah, it. Yeah, he's also, if you put in Mar, uh, Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, and race it, there's a book that actually has the word race in the title so it's kind of a history of of the church and race and our god culture. and race in american politics that's it that's the one is that it but okay. but there's there's another one that i think in some ways gets to the question of where did this wh- why is it that white evangelicals are so ambivalent about race why 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 do they seem to really wink at white supremacy i mean they, they won't they don't articulate it but when they hear it they you know they're they're not put off by it uh and i think see now he might be talking to different people than i am but i i don't see that maybe it's because you know i i grew up in patterson in a racial reconciliation church i went to one in grand rapids i lived in the dominican republic i'm checking off a lot of bingo pieces here and in sacramento and and none of that is to say that there aren't significant issues of race in New York, New Jersey, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in Santo Domingo, in the Dominican Republic, or in Sacramento, California. Race is an issue. But when I when I listen to his treatment of it, I hear people who were formed by the civil rights movement and the struggles of the 70s, of the 60s and 70s. And I don't I don't see a lot of continued evolution in this and i don't know columbia is just you know not too far from tim he should he should really sit down with john mcwarder and you know have a conversation about the black church with glenn lowry i don't know that and and again look at the look at the pentecostal churches and again this this isn't to say that there isn't a significant That, that there aren't significant issues. But when I when I listen to a lot of this analysis, I hear the issues of the 70s and 80s. And I and it's been 40 years. And I think while issues remain, I don't think, at least in the the North 
or at least the Northeast, the Northern Midwest, and the West of the United States. Those tr- those issues may be in the South. It could very well be. I have no idea. But um, I think that I think the dynamics are just different. You have to read Mark Knoll's book, uh, "The Civil War as a Theological Crisis." I think that's a fascinating book. In fact, the title is a fascinating. Yeah, it's a great book. It's well worth it's well worth reading. Anything. Yeah. And he he points out that the rest of the world um, already had moved on. I mean, for example. Ah, right there. Remember the main line? And, And these are some of the things that you begin to see and say, it's easy to sort of poke, you know, throw the racist thing at white evangelicals. But you look at the main line, you know. All, all of this talk about submitting to and incorporating and, well, what about ask African, African Anglicans that worship in our, worship in our facility, ask them, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's just a, it's just a much bigger world. And also, you know, a lot of this had tended to be formed in the, again, back in the Civil War, in Jim Crow, where America was sort of, the, the, the conversation was predominantly African-American versus white. Hispanic, Asian, you know, when I moved, you know, when I moved to, to California, significant more impact from Asian communities. Of course, the Native Americans are just completely forgotten in the mix, um, which in Canada is a whole different story because, of course, the, the European uh, immigrant population in Canada was, and the, the Native American, there, there's, there's a far different mix in Canada. So there's, there's, just, there's just so much, there's just so much more to this. And again, it's a half hour and I'm sure Keller could dive deeper into it. And we'll have to see it in his book. But this, this posture and orientation tends to remain, this is Joey's point. Some of you don't know Joey, but this is Joey's point that the a lot of the progressivism is really sort of a new conservatism and it's been it's been certain it's been certain elements of especially the boomers that it's it's just kind of they're still there with us uh james thornwell and robert dabney who are two southern presbyterians so i'm going to take carrie i'm going to take responsibility here yeah yeah conservative presbyterian theologians Calvinist, you know, very orthodox, and um, they were absolutely uh, in uh, lockstep theologically with the with conservative uh, Presbyterians in Scotland. Uh, the great leader was Thomas Chalmers, and uh, you know the Free Church of Scotland, which which was a really really strong uh, church. And theologically, they're exactly the same. But Thornwell and Dabney were making all these arguments about, well, the Bible justifies race uh, 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 slavery. Slavery's fine. Look, it says, slaves obey your masters. And the free church people over in Scotland are saying, you're, you're kidding, right? And again, this is exactly the conversation that you're having between, let's say, American Episcopalians and African Episcopalians, or American Roman Catholics and African African Episcopalian uh, Roman Catholics are saying, "You're kidding, right?" <laughs> and 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 part of what part of this says to me is that, and, and Keller's very upfront with this. Your 
doctrine dogmatic framework will not save you or your church. And and some of you, you know, well, gosh, this is a Christian form minister. But I think at the heart of actually the doctrine itself says, no, we <laughs> Jesus saves us, not our doctrine, not our dogma, not our ecclesiology, not our framework. And and so Keller will have, you know, he'll he'll tinker with it, but um, it, it was just it was just a striking thing when I listened to this on the plane heading down to Southern California, listening to that whole section about how the main line is disconnected, and it's like, then you listen to this part and you have to say, yeah, the the Africans are saying to the Americans, you're kidding, right? And it just that whole thing just says we need to continue to we. You know, I said, uh, you know, the Bible, look, yeah, look, it says, uh, you know, slavery is something that God in the Mosaic legislation is there. And they look and say, you know, it does say in Deuteronomy that if a slave escapes, you don't return him because it shows they were abused. It says in Exodus that if you hit a slave to punish him and you knock his tooth out, he goes free. It says there that nobody should be a slave more than six years. It says there that slavery is never based on, you know, race. And it they say, you're kidding, right? And and yet what had happened was because the economy of the South, certainly the uh, prosperous South, you know, the people who had the money was based on slavery. And there was this enormous pressure uh, on the Christians to justify it and not to undermine it. And you look at somebody like Thornwell and Dabney, because I have read their stuff. It, it, and it goes far beyond just economics. And at one level, they seem to be extremely sincere and very, very smart. But it's so fascinating that the, the cultural times shaped the way in which they read the Bible. And people who were not in that spot, they could see that they were being distorted. I mean, people from Scotland elsewhere, they could see it. And um, But what happened was they justified it. And then, of course, they had the Civil War and then they lost. And afterwards, there was a lot of uh, white Southern evangelicals that, that held on to this self-justifying approach saying, well, black people, they should be slaves because, you know, look, they're, they're inferior. Look at, look at their poverty. Look at, look at the crime. And now, okay. Now you should mention, okay. Science. What, 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 what becomes the theological just, what becomes the justification for the inferiority? It's, you know, it's Darwin and Herbert Spencer. And that just, that was a very, very powerful moment in, American history, where um, the church, the Southern church should have turned to the Bible and read it. I think Now, again, if you read Marsden, Marsden will make the point that the Southern church, the old Southern church really gets taken apart. And so the Northern church sort of comes in and replants itself in the South. And that's going to be a very complex thing. But and again, the Civil War just sort of sets the stage for a lot of things for the next hundred years. Think in context with, I mean, read it in connection with other people from other cultures. See, it wasn't that easy to do back then. And said, are we reading this right? Or are we just reading our own needs into it? Are we really listening to God's word? Or are we kind of eisegeting, you know, reading into it what we want to see? Um, but they failed. They did read it in. And that just, that that has infected. I mean, the, the white evangelicals have always had a strong strain of distrust of other races and i think i think it comes down from that and those those two 
people have a distrust of other groups. It's not just white evangelicals. Mainline won't listen to Africans. Um, only the good Africans. It, I mean, and that, that isn't to say that. So, again, it, it's just, to me, sort of setting up the argument like I saw it set up in the 80s. And it hasn't changed that much since the 80s. Books by Noel do help us see how that happened. And it's, um, it, you know, I mean, is that our original sin? I don't know. Is that American Evangelical's original sin? I don't know if I go that far. I think we have our own original sin. <laughs> it's not slavery. It's turning from God. And we, we all have remaining sin in us. But it's it's been tremendously tragic, and we're still experiencing it now. Yeah. Well, another thing we're really experiencing, too, is politics. Yeah. And I forget whether it was the New York Times or... Uh, Atlantic that you wrote for, but you've had a couple of pieces over the last few years. As if there was a moment we weren't experiencing politics. Years on the uh, close coupling yeah. of conservative evangelicals and the politicization, really, of church. Um, your thoughts on that and where that becomes problematic and perhaps contribute? Now, now I should be as um, honest with Keller as I have been with Kristen Kobes de May's book, I would love to see in this analysis the, and, and he's touching on it because he's talking about the decline of the main line. You really have to talk about how the main line was the establishment and the continued evolution of the establishment Christianity into, you know, what we've called the blue church. Leading to the decline of American evangelicalism. Well, now that's the, if you ask why this, why did this politicization happen? Yeah. You know, and what, what, why is it happening? Um, that's the hardest question you've asked me so far. I, I think, in fact, I bet it's the hardest question you're going to ask me. So you might want to give yourself a cigar right now. And, and as critical as I've been so far, I really love what Keller does with this now, because I think it's super helpful. Thank this you. is yeah you're welcome this 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 is this is hard so let me give you the best answer i can uh liberal democracy which is how our i'm using the word liberal very broadly liberal democracy which is how our constitution was written how our you know how our country was founded was the idea that the government is neutral when it comes to religion and religious beliefs. It does not impose religion and religious beliefs on people. It doesn't impose a worldview on people. It doesn't say, uh, it, it doesn't hook up to Catholicism or Chris or Christ, you know, Lutheranism or whatever. And therefore it's big on freedom of association, freedom of speech. It's a pluralistic society. So you have Jews and Catholics and various kinds of Protestants and atheists and 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 it doesn't impose a worldview or religious views on people and uh, or moral values on people and it came out of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment was born a couple hundred years before uh, America in the wars of religion when everybody was fighting basically people were dying as to which religion my my country is going to be. 
And the, a lot of the now, a lot of you will notice a lot of similarity because I've told this story a lot on this channel. Thinkers of Europe came up and said, "Hey, you know what? Let's let's create a society in which there's no one religion that is the official religion, and we are coming together just as reasonable people, and we decide how we want to live together. And uh, we, we 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 park our religion at the door when we come into the public realm, and we we make laws based on you know common." common good and that kind of thing. And for a very long time that worked in America. And I just want you to know that that's the problem. The big problem is that liberal democracy is in crisis. And the reason it's in crisis is because, and here's the irony, and I, I don't think I, I, I think I could trace this out if I was writing something down. I think it'd be a little hard early right now to do it. And I'd love to see him take that on because, again, you're going to have to deal with the main line in this story because the main line evolved. And and just saying, okay, the distinction between the main line and the other is that they gave up doctrine. I don't think it's I don't think that analysis goes deep enough. But weirdly enough, liberal democracy kind of led to the decline of religion probably because it, it really said you know religion is okay for your private life but when it comes to the public life we really don't need it you know it's really not important we just use science and reason to figure out how we're going to live and you you park your religion at the door when we come out here and talk together you know whether you're a jew or a catholic or a muslim or a christian or an atheist you, you you know you you come together and we just we just on you know we just decide this and it was it was part of uh, I think what weakened faith because it was really saying faith is a private thing. It just makes you happy, but it really isn't all that necessary for how you live your whole life. Now that, that's low resolution, but it's it's what we've been working on in this little corner of the internet. What on earth do we mean when we talk about faith? What what what? How how can we get deeper into this question of the the faithing part of us and all this materiality down below. Whatever. But the fact is that when religion started to decline, the thing that now, I, I have some atheist friends who admit this, say the thing that actually held us together was not freedom of speech, freedom of association, you know, using our reason. What held us together was like 80% of the population went to either a Catholic or a, or a Protestant church. They actually went. And that even though, like, you know, the liberals and conservatives in Congress would were uh, arguing over taxes or unions, but they would never argue over same-sex marriage. They all thought it was be a horrible thing. In other words, everybody was a nominal, 80, 90 percent of people were nominal Christians. And because they were nominal Christians, they had they had a moral base and they lived with the illusion that we're really not a Christian country. We're a secular country. But the fact is they'd never really had to deal with pluralism using liberal democratic uh, you know, structure. And when real pluralism came along, when real pluralism came along, we found out we, we couldn't abide it. And so now here's the first thing that happened. The first, the first group of people that actually moved away from liberal democracy into we're gonna impose our worldview on you were the progressives. They were the first people to start doing it. Um, what uh, Rowan Williams, Archbishop of Canterbury, former, talks about, he calls it programmatic secularism. 
rather than perceive. That's a good one to steal. Programmatic secularism. I, I, I haven't said this for a while. I said it earlier in the early days of the channel. I mean, pastors are thieves. We, we, we find things like this and we say, I'll, I'll take that. Programmatic secularism. Procedural secularism. In other words, it used to be the government was secular in the sense of being a neutral umpire and said, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure everybody has a, a you know level playing field to make your case and, and live your lives. But, but programmatic secularism goes like this. Um, uh, if you, ex well, put it this way. In the 60s and 70s, even the 50s, if somebody wrote a book saying it's okay to be gay, that would probably be not publishable because it would be banned as obscene speech, right? Today, if you say, if you try to write a book or say it's not okay to be gay, now it's also condemned as obscene speech, except it's called hate speech. Now, I should probably share with you something someone just sent to me. Some, not, Michael Collins, Catholic school has student arrested for expressing Catholic beliefs. And we've seen some of this in the Bay Area. Apparently, this kid stood up and said, no, there's only two genders. Probably should have said two sexes, male and female, and they can't. you can't go beyond them. And apparently... Uh, it led it led to the kid getting put in a police cruiser. And what's happened is there was a kind of hegemony. It wasn't pluralistic. There was a kind of nominal Christian hegemony that really did run things. And when when that fell apart, now we realize, well, who's going to get in charge of defining hate speech and obscene speech? And progressives said, we're going to do it. And so what they actually have done is they are imposing a kind of programmatic, uh, hard secularism. And conservatives and Christians have seen that. They say, you know what, you're not being neutral anymore. You're really actually pushing. You're really, you're actually saying, you're actually saying you have to keep your religion totally, totally private when our religion doesn't allow that. Now, by the way, it's the same problem with Islam. So they're going to have the more Muslims that are here, the more problems they're going to have there too. But the issue is that conservatives are pushing back wrongly, I think, and are saying, yeah, liberal democracy doesn't work. We need, there's a lot of conservatives and we need Christian nationalism. We actually need to get, the, the state needs to be overtly Christian, overtly Protestant, or there needs to be, you know, the Catholic integralists say that the Catholic church should be the state church. And what they're saying is there's absolutely no way to get that moral consensus. We're always going to be fragmented. Liberal democracy doesn't work. And it is a crisis because the fact is, as long as everybody was a nominal Christian, liberal democracy works and it doesn't, we're not that anymore. Liberal democracy undermined Christianity and religion in general and created the situation where we truly are divided. And now the old liberal democracy, democratic, uh, uh, you know, proceduralism doesn't bring us together. We're just at each other's throats. We have alternate views of reality, totally different views of reality. And I don't have a good way forward. I mean, if you were asking me that question, I'm not going to answer it because I'm actually thinking it out. I still think liberal democracy is way better than Catholic integralism or Protestant Christian nationalism. But I also feel like you've got to call out the progressives, you know, to say this, what youth consider democracy actually isn't. It is actually an imposition of your worldview on us. 
So I, I feel like we have to call both sides out. But when I do that, I am, maybe Carrie, you know, I am called both sideism, um, you know, playing, you know, ba or, or, or being trying to be apolitical when you can't be. I, I don't think that's possible. But I do think it's fair to say, sorry, right and left, you're, I don't know what the alternative is, but you, what you are proposing is absolutely wrong, will never really work. So I told and again, anybody who's familiar with, you know, some of the stuff that I've been wrestling with, with respect to, I still have to do Aaron Wren's second talk, which I'm really looking forward to because I thought there was a lot of good stuff in that talk. But this, I think he lays out the problem very well here in a very accessible, low resolution way, which again, it's a half hour talk. And so you can't lean on him. Too bad. And, and the guy's fighting stage four pancreatic cancer. The fact that he can do this at all is, is, is a miracle. But that's where, for me, this sets up the rise of Jordan Peterson. Because when you look at... Well, let me just pull up the, the video that I released a couple days ago. And I know that I was playing with the definition of natural law because I think and I've said this many times, go back to C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, this word nature, like I said, things slip under the words. The definitions move around sort of like this hot spot that's under Yellowstone right now. And it, it, it sort of, you go look at a geology thing about the origins of Yellowstone National Park and, you know, these hot spots move. So nature has been a word that has been a word to watch for the last 800 years and what why so much conservative excitement and progressive angst you know really unfounded in with many respects about well except for jordan on twitter um but about jordan peterson because i think they're looking for just like in the protestant reformation when okay reason plus text is not resolving the protestant catholic fight there are there are things underneath oh maybe maybe reason and empiricism together can create a united world voltaire noted that um, the merchants on the docks whether they be muslim or jewish or catholic or protestant seem to get along and so there's there's all this desire to use other methods to to bring unity and agreement where there are some deep um, perspectives that are making it very hard for people to cooperate and communicate and be productive and not kill each other or or do bad things against each other. Well, I should let him finish because he's going to say something that serves my agenda. Told you this was the hardest question, and I don't know what you're going to do with. So, Tim, that is fascinating, and I guess you could say that for the first time, we really do have a plurality of opinions, right? Like that's what pluralism is—we have divergent opinions. I also know that you know you spent a lot. Of it, it's it's a lot deeper than that. Time in your active ministry navigating LGBTQ issues and the sexuality of the Scripture versus our culture's view. 
Um, just to draw that out a little bit more, I know we've talked about identity and how that's become a defining characteristic of this generation. But how do you suggest, because obviously there are people who are affirming who listen to this podcast, there are people who are not, but how do you suggest when you have a different viewpoint than perhaps the culture does, how do you express that in a way that isn't reactionary or angry or inflammatory or completely alienating from the gospel? Well, you've half answered. I love questions where you, the question actually gives half the answer. It was a softball, was it? <laughs> it was. I mean, I, a lot of it has to do with tone. A lot of it has to do with also uh, it, it, another thing. It, a lot of it has to do with um, the theater that you're in when you're talking. In other words, are you are you just spouting the world, or are you actually talking to somebody face to face? Are you talking to neighbors? Um, are you? Uh, I think what you have to do is you have to say, "Here's how I see it." Um, but then the, the best way to do this is to say, my understanding of your point of view is this. And then when you are done, if the other person... Oh, look, we're doing all that that whole steel manning thing the IDW was playing with four years ago. And it comes out of the therapist's office. ...person says that you said that perfectly well. I couldn't have said it better myself. Then you can say, well, here's why I don't agree with it. And here's, here's my point of view. I think that in that way, you, you actually have, um, it's face-to-face. -face. You know, you have people who are talking to each other. I actually, by the way, believe that that cadre of people, they do have to spend time together before they would make those videos. Sorry to cut that off. Someone came through and busted five windows, breaking into the rest of the classrooms only to decide that stealing tables and chairs was not worth it but doesn't mean don't have to fix the glass so let's go back that, that i think that in that way you you actually have um it's face to face you know you have people who are talking to each other i actually by the way believe that that cadre of people they do have to spend time together before they would make those videos they actually have to have these a lot of these conversations before they make the videos but I do think you might be able to do something like that, where where you were giving people. You have to build relationships between the people, and you have to improve communication. You're going to have to understand each other if you're going to hopefully arise at something like a new consensus about how to go forward. Um, examples of how we ought to be talking to each other and, and how we can still live together. So that's the reason why I still believe that liberal democracy, uh, a, a, plur a truly pluralistic society in which the progressives are not actually shutting out uh, religious people, you know, Orthodox Muslims and, and Christians and uh, Jews who have particular views. But at the same time, there's not some Christian hegemony, some Christian nationalism that's shutting out secular voices or gay voices or anything like that. I don't know how we're not going to have... Um, uh, pluralistic society, how we're going to get a pluralistic society unless we change public opinion, which right now is actually trending on both sides away from freedom of speech. It's trending away from these, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is, especially under younger people, you know, uh, you, you, both, both left and right, younger people are not in favor of what, what us older people would have considered free speech. They are, they are definitely in, in, they, they like speech codes. They like just telling people you can't say those things on both sides. 
And so what you'd have to do is give people examples. And I think that could be done. I think, on the other hand, I don't know, Carrie, why don't you come up with your uh, list of 10? I actually do know a few, frankly. Uh, I'm on a Zoom call fairly often with um, people on both sides, you know, both religious believers and non-religious people and liberals and more conservative people and all that, that actually get together in order to have conversations like this. Um, but it's very getting together in order to have conversations like this. Doggone it. Where have we heard that before? If only there was a name for something like that. If only there was like a group of people, enormously diverse. So, you know, again, last, so my estuary is a little unusual because of a variety of things. We tend to have a few more people at mine than most of the others. But most of the people that are at Vendonk's Estuary in Southern California are there from meetup.com. And if, if you've worked the meetup.com thing, you sort of know that it's a, it's a grab bag. And there's a... There's a guy who's an immigrant from a Muslim nation. There's um, a guy who's uh, he's an African American who teaches literature at the college level. There's a, a Brazilian guy who's who's um, as white as I am. There's um, with a with a yarmulke on, and of course we had Jacob last night and Richard and. The, the and then an, another guy who came in of of Asian descent. It was his first time, and everybody around that table. I mean, it's radically different religions, radically different political persuasions. I mean, it was it was all there in the room last night, and it was a great meeting. It was a great meeting, and we talked, and you know we you know we have our little estuary protocol that sort of helps. Um, not have the conversation get too dominated by one person or by one thing and helps the group sort of agree for some ground rules for the conversation and off we go. And so, and I'm not saying, you know, I, I talked to Vendank this morning at breakfast before he took me to the airport. You know, this isn't the be all and end all, but it's a tool and it's a way. And I, I listened to this and I thought, yeah, this is, I saw a lot of validation in this because this is what we're doing. We're having these conversations, and I think we are looking at the um, there. I think behind behind this movement, there is a a real desire for well. We need we need a new basis for pluralism, and and in this way, Keller and Peterson are on the same page because neither one of them wants to sort of throw off the sort of a, a classical liberal posture that says it, it's best not, and it probably can't be done in this world to sort of hive off portions of the world again and have the Islamic world and the Christian world and whatever on earth the Chinese are doing because that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother question. And on and on and on and on. We're going to have to be able to communicate with each other because the, and this is where the Game B people come in, of course, because the stakes are really high. And, yeah. So I was, 
I was pretty I was pretty excited about this video and when he ended it this way I thought yeah I think we're on the right track I think we're on the right track and so we'll see where this goes so um, as always I do a video like this and part of me you know I'm gonna have it post in the morning and I'm gonna just kind of you know dare I look at Twitter and my YouTube comments after this it's so it'd be so much easier to just be a standard Christian YouTuber, huh? To just define that little box and keep nailing that little box. But you know, there I'm yeah, yeah I, I've got to be crazy for doing what I'm doing. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was right, if I didn't think it was Christian, if I didn't think it was faithful to the call of Jesus Christ on my life and um, faithful to the gospel. I'll, I'll say it that way as a, as a reformed Christian. So yeah, I can't wait to hear what y'all are going to say about this.